0: Good morning, High Point, and good morning to everybody visiting High Point this morning. We appreciate your presence, and we thank you that you've come to worship with us this Sunday. Um, I'm going to be reading from Acts 26. This is on page 1702 or 1702 in your pew Bible. We can just celebrate today that Christ is risen. I'll be reading Acts 26 verses 20 to 32. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me but God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent, Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such, sh- such a short time you-, you can persuade me to be a Christian, Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord written for his people.
1: Thanks, Femi. Hey, hey everybody. Hey. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Hope you're having ham this afternoon, as I am. Celebrate our freedom in Christ. And um, if you're new to us this, this morning, we, as a church, have spent about a year in the book of Acts in the Bible, and this is the last sermon that will be out of the book of Acts. And as I was reading through chapter 26, this passage about Paul in front of Festus and Agrippa I thought would be perfect for Easter, not because only that Paul emphasizes the importance of the resurrection and the message of the gospel, but because there are two objections in this passage that I think are universally human. I think they, they are the exact same objections that we think and that we feel, and I don't mean that. For people just who are not Christians, I think that's true for non-Christians, people who aren't believers yet, but I think it's also true for Christians. I think that the questions that rattle around inside of us um, are dealt with differently, with Christians and people who aren't yet Christians, but they're not different questions. The first one is from Festus, who is the Roman governor of the region, and he actually interrupts Paul while he's speaking about the resurrection, and it says that he shouts, You're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you mad. It's like back when I was in the South and we used to say to people who got PhDs that didn't apparently help them mentally that they went and lost their sense in all their studies. And um, there's a sense in which sometimes people can go a little little crazy. But the translation is fundamentally for all of us is just like, there is no way you're right. Everything that I know of everything my common sense tells me or my learning has discovered, there's no way you're right. And the second one is by Agrippa, where he basically he says, "Do you think that in such a short time you're going to persuade me to become a Christian?" And essentially the argument there is, "Do you really think you're going to get me to accept this? Do you think you're going to get a sale today? Because there's all kinds of other issues here I have to deal with and look at before I can buy into this." But Paul's response to both of those questions, even though he he states this verse in relationship just to Festus, it, it's a response to both of them ultimately, as Luke writes it, and he says, <clears throat> "I'm not insane." What I'm saying is true and it's reasonable. And I believe that this exact dynamic is exactly what we face every single day. So I want to split it up into those two objections. So the first one is, is the one that I think belongs to everybody but comes out of the mouth of Festus in this passage. And that is that, that, what, that this idea that Jesus rose from the dead, and that that changes everything and means something cataclysmic, which would literally affect every moment of our lives, including all of our internal states and thoughts and how we handle feelings and drives and all of that, is built on something that is very difficult for us to accept. The, the problem is, is that it's a little different. When somebody says, you're just crazy, it's a little difficult sometimes to figure out exactly what it is they're objecting to, right? He's, Festus is probably not saying to Paul that what he's saying is incomprehensible. Like, it's irrational in that it do, the statement itself doesn't make sense. That it's like two plus two equals nine, or that Sarah is drawing a square circle. I mean, these statements are all... Literally objectively false. You don't have to know anything more than what's on the screen and you know they're false because they are self-contradictory, right? But that's not what Festus probably means. He probably means something more like, it is so extremely improbable That there's no way a sane person who has like an appropriately calibrated intuition could believe this. The problem is is that when you observe the objection that this basically boils down to, that I've heard thousands of times in the 20 years that I've done ministry, that is essentially, essentially this. Listen, 100% of humans that die stay dead. Therefore, the idea that Jesus has risen is just unbelievable. When you really assess that objection, it's—it's not actually rational, because it's a circular argument. Um, It—it presumes that humans don't rise from the dead, so Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. And we know Jesus didn't rise, therefore, because Jesus isn't God. But at no point do we deal with the premise, Jesus, who is a human, is also God. Because everybody knows, the minute you grant the premise that Jesus that is human is also God, this argument completely breaks down. Because it doesn't matter how many trillions of humans die and stay dead, if those humans were humans and not God, they're in a completely different mathematical set than the only one who is in the set of both human and God. You could live for 50 billion years and watch 200 trillion humans die and not rise. And it would have no logical relationship whatsoever to whether or not it's believable that the man Jesus died and is also alive. It is not just agreed upon by non-Christians, but everybody believes this statement. Humans that are not also God, that are not acted upon by any outside divine force, stay dead 100% of the time, except for the people that watch the paranormal channel. I mean, other than that, everybody, everybody believes this. The difference is, is that Christians believe that Jesus, who is true humanity, is also simultaneously true divinity. Now, some people have difficulty with that, and ultimately, that's where the, the whole thing breaks down for people because they believe, essentially, that you can't have such a thing as true God and true man because if you're truly human, to err is to human, to forgive divine, right? Like, there is a reality of being human that can't be shared by divinity. Let me, but let me try to explain why that's just not a good way to conceive of it by talking about knives. Sound good? I couldn't find a way to do this with guns, so we'll do knives. Um, I'm just kidding. That's not true. <clears throat> That would be a felony, actually, for me. Okay, because this is a school. Um, so in order for you to have a true knife, you need three things. You need a hard blade, you need a sharpened edge, and you need a handle, because it's no fun using a knife holding the blade, right? And knives can vary dramatically, but it, 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 something's a true knife if it has those three things, and if it doesn't have any of those three things, it's not a true knife. Do you understand? So. Is that true knife? Right? Because I see the kids, the kids are into this, right? Hard blade, sharpened edge, handle, very different, right? But they're both true knife, right? All right, how about this one? So it's an army knife, right? That's right, Jude, right? You've got, listen, it's got scissors, it's got bottle opener, and it's got, it's got a saw. Right? And it's got a bottle opener in case you're camping with lots of wine. You gotta wonder what it was like to be in the Swiss Army. You're like, that? I think that bodes well. Um, but, but it has a hard blade with a sharpened edge and a handle. It's a true knife, right? So can a knife be pliers, right? You know where I'm going with this, right? So. Hard blade, sharpened edge, handle, but it's pliers. You see, the, 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 the thing that, that miscalibrates our intuition on whether or not there can be such a being that is true God and true man is because we, we believe that if we are being devout about how other God is, and if we're being properly sentimental about what we romantically are, the two cannot really be combined. If you believe that your sinful nature and your personal failings and your human limitations and your obscure emotions are fundamentally part of who you are, and you know that God isn't like that, then man and God cannot come together one being. If you believe God is so fundamentally, totally, completely other that he's ineffable, you can't even hardly talk about him, then that divine being cannot become man. But that is one of the reasons why the Bible on the very first page where God had already dreamed up his Christ, but no human author could have conceived of it yet, demonstrated that when God created human beings, God said, let us make man or humans in our own image. You see, the only way true knife can be true pliers is if they're actually made out of compatible stuff. Nobody has a multi-tool sponge, right? There is no knife sponge. Okay, and that's not almost to market, right? If you're an entrepreneur, I wouldn't suggest like being, oh, great idea. It's a terrible idea because they're made out of such fundamentally different stuff. But you see, when God intentionally created human beings to be creatures made in his own image, he built into us in our first creation the capacity for union, which is why a Christian can become a Christian and we can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure the Holy Spirit indwells squirrels. I'm not even really sure that's possible. You may need certain faculties of conscience and rationality and moral capacity in order to even understand your being indwelled by or have a relationship to the divine spirit. And that's just our spiritual relationship with God. But if that's possible because of the divine image, there is no reason in principle you cannot have true man and true God like you would have true pliers and true knife. In fact, the reason we don't believe in true God, true man, or if we're Christians, we have some kind of strange, obscure, deep doubt, is because we are divided. We exist in the function of our intuition more than anything else, which is this strange mutual combination of our reason, our will, our emotion, and all these other things spilling around this strange center of conscience and intuition. And our belief that this can't possibly be right like Festus is essentially something being screamed not from our rationality, But through a place in our emotions, which hijacks momentarily a certain place of our intuition, and intuitionally we feel somehow it can't be right. And so we don't believe in it to follow Jesus, or if we do, we reserve parts of our life for ourselves just in case we're wrong, because we do believe in something that on some level seems somehow unbelievable. But if we actually identify the place in us— that can't believe, it's not our rationality. It's actually areas of our fear and pride, our unwillingness to believe the limitations of our experience. It's in how small and how wicked we are that makes it unbelievable. And when we realize that, the question I think that really ought to jump to our minds is is that, okay, that doesn't mean that I automatically believe because that would be incredulous, but what it means is is I probably need, through an act of will and choice, to bring my rationality in this and ask, well, what is the reason that I should believe in spite of this place of intuition screaming, this can't be right? And. Uh, three or four years ago, I did like a 40-minute sermon just on this question. And the ushers did at both welcome desks on the way out. You can pick up a copy of that if you want to. And Jill's also going to post it on the podcast um, this coming week. So if you want to hear that, I just want to whet your appetite and say, listen, it's worthwhile looking into this, right? There's four facts related to the resurrection that when you put them together, they make it extraordinarily difficult to explain the claim of the resurrection of Jesus in any other way. The first, and least controversial, is that after Jesus' crucifixion, he was dead and was laid in a tomb by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. There are five independent sources that claim that Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus. Four in the Bible, one outside the Bible. And the funny thing about Joseph of Arimathea is he's a Sadducee, which is basically the Nazis of the Jesus story. The Sadducees were the people that got Jesus killed, And Jesus talked a lot about the poor And about people who weren't subject To the ruling class Or the religious autocracy And the the Sanhedrin was the embodiment Of all of these things The political power, the religious autocracy And the rich In fact, where does Jesus get buried? In a stone tomb Can you afford a stone tomb? Nobody can It's something rich people have For the most part and so, it's so unlikely that anybody would have invented the story of Joseph Arimathea. The reason why he's probably in the Bible is because there's almost certainly a Joseph Arimathea who buried Jesus in a tomb. The second is, is that Jesus was—the following day on that Sunday, two days later actually, Jesus' tomb was found empty by, by a number of his women followers. There is no explanation of the empty tomb that includes a body of Jesus. We should just state that right. Every explanation— about what happened to Jesus includes his tomb being empty, which is relatively significant. But one of the things that's strange is that in all of the documents that demonstrate the tomb being found empty, the first people that find it are always women, which is incredibly strange because in a Jewish court at that time, if there was a man being accused of something and there were seven female witnesses that said that he was guilty, and the man said for himself that he was innocent, in the Jewish court of that time, and I believe in the Roman court of that time, only one testimony had legally been given—that of the man. And therefore, it was a no contest that he was innocent. The word of a woman in a Jewish court at this time was worthless. Women were not considered trustworthy witnesses. The the o- the only better explanation than they said women found the tomb empty because women found the tomb empty is that somehow the four gospel writers foresaw that in 2,000 years there would be a Western culture and that Western culture would become feminist. And in that feminism, there would be this vague sense that somehow women were morally superior to men and therefore it would be somehow an advantage to make women the people that found the tomb so that long after all of us were dead, way, way, way in the future, literally 20 centuries, there would be a group of people that might find this narrative more compelling because the people who found him were women or didn't find him. It's an anachronism of the highest order, and it is a silly argument. The reason the Gospel writers tell us that the women found an empty tomb is because the women found an empty tomb. The third is, and this is in some ways more important than the other two, on different occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive. I don't know if you know this, but if you read the Gospels, there's more material, significantly more material, on the post-resurrection appearances of the living Jesus than on the resurrection itself. Only Mark's Gospel stops with with the resurrection and the empty tomb. And it's important to recognize that um, one of the reasons why hallucin- hallucination sorts of theories that have been popular but they've never really held much water is because people don't hallucinate physical objects that so they can touch and smell in groups the exact same way of each other over 40-day periods where more than 500 people see them. That's not how hallucinations work. And when Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's testifying about the risen Jesus, having seen the risen Jesus himself. And he says, not only have I, not only did all the disciples and apostles see Jesus, and then me, but there are actually over 500 people who saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. And then he says, some of them have fallen asleep, but most of them are still living. Meaning— this claim is entirely verifiable and falsifiable. You see, people talk a lot, especially in secular cities like Madison, that religious claims are fundamentally unfalsifiable, so people can just say them and just believe them, and they don't really have to back them up. And that is true about a lot of religious claims, except for the one that Jesus is at, that Christianity is absolutely founded on, that is the resurrection of Jesus. And it has been claimed since the very beginning on evidence that could hardly be better that more than 500 people saw a living Jesus after his crucifixion and burial. Men, women, different economic classes, different education classes, different historical backgrounds from different regions of the Mediterranean basin, all of them seeing a living Jesus in groups, eating food, doing stuff. In fact, one of the things that people often like to say in dismissal of this is, well, but these are stories, and it's very difficult to tell what stories are mythologically written and not. Listen, 1 Corinthians is a letter. There's no story in it at all. Flip it open in your Bible. There's a point he gets to chapter 15, he's writing a letter of instruction, and he says, let me clarify what the gospel is. It's these things, that these events happened, and I am giving testimony. But even in the Gospels, the Gospels are not written as, myth- as mythology and, and not even merely a story There's this place in Mark 16 I don't think it's Mark, I think it's Mark 15 where Jesus is carrying his cross to be crucified, and he falls for like the third time, and a Roman soldier compels a guy named Simon to carry his cross the rest of the way. Now, remember that biblical narratives are very short. There's no wasted words. Paper in those days was extraordinarily expensive. It was woven It was woven reeds and stuff. It's kind of pricey. But yet, Mark adds in a couple inexplicable phrases that just don't really happen normally in storytelling. He says, Simon who was from Cyrene that's North Africa who is the father of Alexander and Rufus now why why would Mark put that in there? Right? Richard Bauckham, a New Testament scholar in England, says, the reason is, is because all of the gospel writers don't write as storytellers. They write as testifiers. They write as people who have seen and researched facts and are telling them with things built in so that you could falsify or verify them if you lived then. Because, I don't know if you know this, but in the 16th chapter of Romans, Paul says, say hey to Rufus for me. You see, because when Mark—when Mark— published mark, probably in Rome, there was a guy in the Roman church, Rufus, who was Simon's kid, who if you asked him, he would tell you what his daddy said about that day, and how he was made to carry Jesus' cross, and he was terrified, and it was the most significant thing he ever did, and he couldn't believe what he saw, and he told his kids over and over, and so if you found Alexander and Rufus, you're going to hear a true story that was a killer story. So that when Mark published his gospel, he put those names in because it was a verifiable thing. And Paul talked about the witnesses of the gospel, not in telling a story, but in a letter, because it was verifiable. Most of the people were still alive. You could go talk to them. Look, it is no problem with the gospel's testimony that over 2,000 years, those 500 people have up and died. If God did anything in history— He would have done it such that there would have to be testimony about it for future generations if the thing was going to be once for all. It is a reality of space and time and a scandal for us that we don't get to see it. But the benefit we have is the people who were in the story only got part of the story because they were in it. If we would believe basic straightforward testimony, we get to see the whole story. If we saw it clearly, we'd see we have an enormous advantage over these people. Not that we're at a disadvantage. The last, and I'm only going to spend a couple minutes on this, is, is Agrippa's statement. Like, Is it really reasonable for you to expect me to believe this? All right, essentially, what Agrippa is saying is this. Listen, I have a good life. I'm not letting this hijack my good life. Right, Agrippa was, was the was the king of that region of Israel, which was under Roman rule, which is why Festus was there. But Agrippa was the king, and he was there with all of his all of his entourage, and he was there with his wife, and they were having a big meal and a great time when Paul got brought in, and so he's half full of lamb and wine. I think he had one of those Swiss Army knives, and. He's having a good time. He's with the people of power. He's in a palace that has the o- one of the only freshwater swimming pools within 20 feet of salt water in the entire ancient world. That's how crazy Herod was. He cut a freshwater swimming pool out of the rock for his palace in Caesarea Maritima. There was this big hippodrome and theater and there were horse races and he was having a great time being king. And some penniless, vagrant-looking, chained man gets brought in, and says, "The carpenter Jesus, who was a rabbi teacher and spoke about the kingdom of God, was crucified for our sins, and he rose from the dead, and it changes everything for everyone, including you." And there's nothing more terrifying to a politician than to realize there's two going to be two authorities that he can't both please. No matter how cunning, no matter how sly, no matter how good-willed he is. And he, know, he knows the implications. And so when he says—do you think in just a few minutes you're gonna—he's stalling, like all of us. We can say, to err is human, to forgive divine, you could just as easily say to stall is human. He's essentially saying, listen, if I am not gonna give up—I need to think through What this will do, if I believe in this Jesus thing, and I believe that the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus, I have to think through what this—I don't even know the rest of the things Jesus tells me to do. What if Jesus tells me to do something I don't want to do? You see, the problem with that is, that's irrelevant to someone thinking with any kind of nobility. And yet, this is a huge problem for us today. It's not just a problem with cynical politicians from this first century. We've all become cynics in the modern secular world. We all want to pre-think the implications of everything before we believe anything. And that is one of the most unknowable, ignoble things a human being can do. That if I like the implications of this, then I'll believe it us believe stuff only if we like the implications with no relationship to whether or not it's true. We spend more of our time and effort and thought and will on whether or not we like the outcome of something rather than whether or not it's just flat true. This argument Agrippa is making only demonstrates how not noble his thinking about this is. I remember for years in both in seminaries and other places, I was actually involved for years in children's ministry because I'd been told that children accept Jesus a lot more than adults which is partly just a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, there's no adult summer camp. I would like to go. (laughs) Right? We spend all our money on kids. We do an enormous amount of our ministry to kids. It's no wonder they accept Jesus. But it's more than that. There's a reason why Jesus said, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to become like a child. He didn't mean you have to, like, you know, spit up on yourself or spill every glass of milk you're ever handed. Okay? That's not what he meant. You see— Adults think that kids accept Jesus because they're stupid, that they're gullible, that they don't have enough experience in the world. And so when they get told, Jesus is God, he's the God-man, he died for your sins, he rose from the dead, you should believe this, and they go, okay. We think that they're just, well, they're kids, what do they know? Of course they accept Jesus. And then later they won't give it up because nobody likes to change their mind. That's not the reason. It's not the reason. The reason is that kids are more noble than you are, and than I am. Kids live in the truth moment and they look at the world in terms of things being true and false They don't pre-think outcomes Teenagers do that and adults do that We hear something and we go, what will this do? What will this mean? What will I have to do? What will I have to respond to? What will I have to be obedient to if I buy into this? Kids just go, is AA? Is that true? Oh, it's true. Okay, cool Adults don't do that And that is not a great thing that happens in our maturation. It burns the nobility out of our hearts. It makes our conscience coarser, and it makes our intuition incredibly less reliable. Because all it has to go on is some of the lower, more animalistic, and more selfish machinations of our feelings that are totally out of control. And I am not saying that that is the issue for non-Christians. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that is the issue for everyone. I'm saying that in our human condition, for all of us, we keep listening to Jesus and the testimony about his resurrection fixated on results. And what's this going to mean for me? Friends, some of us are parents, okay? Some of you aren't, but some of us are parents. Those of us who are parents, when our kids treat us like that, it is the number one most infuriating thing a parent can ever feel, just about. When you hear like parents of like semi-adult children or adult children being like, I wanted to snap their neck, what, what almost certainly happened is their kid, when they were doing what they really felt was the best on the basis of the truth, they treated them like they, the parent was playing some kind of political game and trying to get them to do something and control them rather than help them to see the truth and respond to it with nobility. It's the most infuriating thing you can possibly feel as a parent. And how much greater is that true of the God who, is, who has himself spoken truth, and we treat it like we don't want to be manipulated. Listen, if God, wanted to, if God wanted to force us to do things, if God was into coercion, he wouldn't have given us apostles, he would have given the world generals. And he would have conquered He would have have conquered the world with armies But what he sent was penniless People in rags Out to their death Among people who thought they were idiots To testify to the truth That a carpenter rabbi Who was the God-man Died for their sins And rose from the dead so that all of humanity would stand on the, on the top of the roof of are you willing to deal with the truth and accept the implications of it wherever they lie, no matter what it does to your life, no matter how it wrecks it or makes it? But are you willing to look at whether or not it's true and respond on the basis of that truth based in conscience, not in miscalibrated intuition? We're going to end with um, seven people that decided to become Jesus' disciples, to believe in him, to believe that he rose from the dead and died for their sins. You're going to see short testimonies about them coming to faith, and then I'm going to baptize four of them. But I hope as you watch this, you will consider whether or not you need to, to just open up a little bit Maybe you just need to come for the next five weeks and just look at what it looks like for Jesus to be the risen Lord in all of the roles and responsibilities of our life. How, how, does, how does the ordinary become spiritually great? Or maybe you need to believe right now, or I don't know, maybe you need to have lunch with somebody or write your question on a connection card and whatever, I don't know. But don't... Don't marinate in these two objections until your conscience and intuition is so waterlogged that you can't hardly move. That Jesus is risen and that everything has changed is both true and reasonable. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to recognize the truth of the gospel. We pray that you would show us um, clarity in areas where we're confused, content in areas where we're ignorant, and and that you would um, offend us and confound us in the areas where we're arrogant or fearful. And we pray that you would guide us into a nobility in considering Christ, and that you would give us the capacity for the faith that we must exert through your power to believe and to know you and to walk with you. We pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.